0: Welcome to the Matthew Peterson show. Today we are in the third and final episode of a the beginning of my course courses, a course on uh, really the the American founding and the American future and this is about George Washington and the American future. The third of a three-part series on uh, George Washington. Uh, this the final episode covers his presidency, the farewell address, and uh, offer some reflections upon um, his lasting legacy and influence and how we might start thinking about that in terms of the American future, what it would take for uh, leadership, uh, one man in a world, what kind of leader and statesman we would need to reform or refound an America that is in flux, that um, has been refounded, restructured a few times since uh, George uh, did what he did. And uh, what I think you should reflect on as you listen to this is the fact that, you know, again, all throughout his life, he was he was really thinking about how to set the standard, how to set the mold, how to uh, channel things in the right direction in order to create a stable state that lasted. Um, he saw this as his legacy. His person was tied into establishing an order greater and beyond himself. And, uh, you know, you might get lucky if you have someone who's just got good instincts and is just relying on their own personal power, who just seizes the throne and seizes everything, seizes the crown lying in the gutter that Napoleon said he picked up. I think there's a little bit of, uh, uh, especially among the intellectual class, uh, many of my own friends, um, there's a little bit of um, you know, kind of a, a taking it for granted that that will go the right way, and that that guy will appear and it'll all be great. Uh, perhaps because they assume uh, that person won't be woke. Likely, they won't necessarily be right, but they won't. Um, they'll be more right than left. They wouldn't really care about all this crazy ideology. They would just use the resistance against it, right? In our cir- circumstances, to uh, to take power. And I think that uh, in the American tradition, as unpopular as it is to say in alt dissonant right circles uh, today. You know, you don't build something new. You'll only be able to tear down. You won't be able to build something new unless you hearken back to something that is truly and distinctly American. And, you know, it's remarkable that even today when this country is very, very corrupt, deeply corrupt, deep state run wild, the weaponized federal government, et cetera, there still is this pretense of nodding to the Constitution, of nodding to— uh, uh, the rule of law or a, uh, a structured order. You know, you, you can have unwritten constitutions. Most times, most nations do, where there are sort of there is a like a structure of the regime, but it's not all codified somewhere in like a constitution. You have laws that come out of that regime, but it's not you know it's not like an overarching written structure. We still have that in our conscience. We still have that in our mind um, as essential. And the interesting thing about that is that that could be changed, right? I mean. Uh, to some degree, and certainly the Federalists thought uh, it could be changed over time to fit the time, fit the people. But uh, what's happened is it has been changed often without uh, changing the document itself, just changing the customs and practices or practices we around the Constitution. And so now we're in this this time in which we really need a a, a restructure, a reformation, a uh, a refounding, and. When you look back at Washington, what conservatives miss is is the extent to which he did this in his own lifetime. And, you know, I offer these talks, I offer these thoughts and put them in front of um, young elites in, in different parts of, of the right because uh, – or even middle-aged elites in the different parts of the right because I want them to think more seriously than, oh, maybe magically some great leader will come and save us. You know, I mean, it's certainly the case now. I just gave a speech at Hillsdale last week, which will be, I think, appearing in video in the next few weeks. Um, Where I I told them and I tell you now, you know, Ron DeSantis or neither neither Ron DeSantis nor Donald Trump is going to come and save you. Um, You know, that that's we're we're beyond that point. So you would need someone uh, with even more power or you'd need someone who consolidates power in such a way as to start battering away at reforming the structure of things. If you really wanted to win and take down the deep state, et cetera. In any event, I, I just think there's a there's a too easy. There's a Caesarism that's much too easy right now um, that that ignores this what I, maybe we could call it a, a middle way a third way which is pretty typical in a, every so often in America when an extremely strong president following again from Washington father of the country who forges it really forges the structure of it more than any other man um, changes the structure well um, well and bases that change on the past on the past in some way and very rare that you have a clean break where you say we're just going to do over everything that's been left behind we're going to do over you know uh, all of america and just create something completely new that hardly ever works in history for good reason doesn't make a lot of sense and so i I think it's really important um you know i know all kinds of incredible people who want to move the right forward and want to move america forward right now who are looking to cast a vision of the future that's, that's better than the past of what we're fighting for, and that's why I'm going back to the past. I'm going back and giving you uh, you know, some nuggets about Washington to think about so that you can think about what the future ought to look like. This isn't an exercise in historicism or, oh, the found, you know founder worship. I, I really want people uh, in positions of power who are want a vision cast to start thinking about uh, who Washington really was and, and to scrub away some of that you know, some of that cheesy stuff that might be in our eyes, uh, in a, you know, doesn't let us see who he really was, and what he was really like, Chad Washington. Uh, you know, Chad Washington, who uh, was in- incredibly powerful, more powerful than really we realize today, but used that power in a much more shrewd and intelligent way than idiot historians uh, make out today for the sake of creating, uh, you know, basically a new order, right? A new A, a new order at the highest level. Uh, in any event, that's a reminder of why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, but now it's time to round out this course uh, with uh, this this first lecture on George Washington and the American future. I'll let myself take it away in the next segment, and uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. <laughs> What happens next? Well, let's let's fast forward a little bit. Um, Washington uh, could keep on running forever as president. So here's the 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 last you know stepping down into retirement. Even though we'll see, it's not even really retirement. Um, he he's going to step down after two terms, when he could clearly stay president for life if he wanted to, most likely. And you know Hamilton and others argue in the Federalist Papers, uh, for instance, that it's better to not have term limits because you want the truly ambitious man. Otherwise, you're just tempting ambition. The man of great ambition, the man who really wants to form and change, uh, you know, make his mark upon the world uh, for good. One hopes, um, you know, wants the statues to be left after him. You don't want to just cabin that guy to, to four years to eight years. Uh, you want to let him harness that ambition for the sake of the common good, but you know, obviously, he let let people be you know make sure they can vote him out. That was that was Hamilton's original idea. That that was the the Federalist idea. Um, but Washington famously, after two terms, steps down, and uh, and walks away. Uh, and until FDR, uh, you know, lo and behold, uh, in a, a whole another century, um, no president decides to go more than then those three, two terms out of respect for Washington. And then FDR does it. He ends up dying in office. And then we, we passed an amendment uh, to, to make sure that it was capped to two. So Washington's example here is, is going to set a precedent that lasts until some wild times when, you know, FDR is the great depression in World War Two, and decides uh, to, 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 uh, to, to cross the Rubicon, but but Washington is the one who uh, creates that river. He creates that barrier. Similar to when he leaves um, public life, uh, military life, he gives a farewell address, 1796, and he he gives a, a, a you know he writes out uh, what he thinks he, the advice. Yeah, you know, the best advice he can give for his country, he writes it out and says, "This is what you should do. This is what the these are the thoughts that I'm and that are on my mind." I encourage you. Uh, we'll have a list of the readings, and you can go uh, find them easily and read them yourself. Uh, it's really worth doing, especially the farewell address in this day and age. A lot of what he says about foreign policy and faction is is ripped from today's headlines, and. Uh, you know, at a time like this, it's a, it's a good time to uh, to reacquaint yourself or read it for the first time. Um, but let's let's look at this and and look at it as a model, um, the close of Washington's public life. Although, uh, as we'll discuss at the end, he really doesn't ever have a private life, given the path he's chosen, even after he leaves office. So it's addressed to friends and citizens. Um, Hamilton helps him write it. Um, Hamilton often uh, would help him draft things, but uh, Washington was actively engaged in writing it as well. It wasn't as if <coughs> it wasn't as if Hamilton was his, uh, you know, his brain, and he was just a talking head.
1: <clears throat>
0: so it's addressed to friends and citizens, appropriate for a republican form of government. Back when citizenship meant something, it wasn't just. Uh, uh, you know, a, a status that gave you benefits, uh, gave you bennies, uh, citizenship, implied rights and duties, and, uh, you know, an ownership in uh, governing, and, and friends. Ultimately, uh, as Aristotle said thousands of years ago, any good regime seeks to, uh, the law really exists to make everyone friends, so you don't need law. Um, ultimately, you you want people to live in a community where they can govern themselves. The the point of the law is again like bumper bowling to keep you from going on you know either side into the gutter uh, and habituate you to staying in the middle and getting where you need to go. So uh, you want uh, you you want your citizens to be friends, and then you obviate the need for law. Uh, of course, that never really happens in in human affairs, but that's what you're aiming towards. And so he says, friends first, uh, citizens second. Um, These are are all uh, members of a political community that he is addressing. And he uses the word citizen again in the the very first sentence. The period for a new election of a citizen to administer the executive government of the United States being not far distant. Um, So we're going to elect a citizen. Um, There is a a notion, a very American, early Republican notion of uh, equality, uh, basic equality, and um, the, uh, the notion of citizenship implying a duty, implying that uh, in some way this really is the people's government. Even though, uh, of course, it, as, as I've been discussing, uh, George Washington, a man with regime-level power, is absolutely necessary in order to institute that government and solidify it. Uh, in America. So what he says is, you're going to choose someone else. um, And so I uh, want to uh, say I'm out of it. And I want to tell you some things, just like he did in a circular letter about, uh, you know, what I think needs to happen. Um, And he gives the impression, again, of someone who uh, is done, has, has done his duty and is ready to you know, go back, uh, go back to the farm. Um, he says, I, "I only say that in the discharge of this trust uh, being president, I only say that I have, with good intentions contributed towards the organization and administration of the government, the best exertions of which a very fallible judgment was capable. Not unconscious in the outset of the inferiority of my qualifications, experience in my own eyes, perhaps still more in the eyes of others. Has strengthened the motives to diffidence of myself, and every day the increasing weight of years admonishes me more and more that the shade of retirement is as necessary to me as it will be welcome. Um, you know, there's there really is something in in leadership uh, that's really important at the end of life that used to be an example. Uh, you know, the example of Washington was the exemplar, the example uh, for this, and that was that. Uh, you're not really done leading until the end game, and the end game is secession, ensuring that uh, what comes after you will be stable. And this is precisely what our uh, geriatric leaders today, uh, clinging to power, white knuckling to power, uh, not allowing anyone you know under the age of 70, really, uh, to, uh, to move up, uh, holding on to it until their death, until past their prime, while they're still uh, senile, just holding on to it for dear life. There's something reprehensible about that. There's something disgusting about that, and and the real uh, you know real notion of leadership. and It's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to let go. Um, but if you've uh, if you've been an entrepreneur, and you've started a variety of businesses, or um, you know you've you've at a higher level, you see good examples of this. The greatest leaders often uh, are able to ensure that the thing lasts, and they um, they 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 look to secession. But it's kind of the hardest part. Um, it's the part that usually, uh, people fail at even great leaders who do great things for companies, for organizations, for countries have a hard time, uh, you know, setting things up, uh, for the right leader to follow. And you, you, see, uh, someone here thinking this is the time I should go, I should retire. And, uh, you know, I've, I've done what I needed to do to set out the example um, he says, satisfied that if any circumstances have given peculiar value to my services, they were temporary. I have the consolation to believe that, while choice and prudence invite me to quit the political scene, patriotism does not forbid it. Um, so I, I want to I'm grateful for what I did, remember if I did anything good, uh, remember it and basically, you know, again, I, I didn't do anything um, uh, out of malice. I think I, I tried my best, Is essentially the message um he says i shall carry it with me to my grave as a strong incitement to unceasing vows that heaven may continue to you the choicest tokens of its beneficence that your union and brotherly affection may be perpetual that the free constitution which is the work of your hands may be sacredly maintained that its administration in every department may be stamped with wisdom and virtue that in fine the happiness of the people of these states under the auspices of liberty, may may be made complete by so careful a preservation and so prudent a use of this blessing, as will acquire to them the glory of recommending it to the applause, the affection, and adoption of every nation which is yet a stranger to it. Um, And and that's kind of the pro forma beginning. But he says, here perhaps I ought to stop. But a solicitude for your welfare, which cannot end but with my life, and the apprehension of danger, Natural to that solicitude, urge me <clears throat> on an occasion like the present to offer to your solemn contemplation and to recommend to your frequent view some sentiments which are the result of much reflection, of no inconsiderable observation, and which appear to me all important to the permanency of your felicity as a people, the permanency of your felicity, the permanency of your happiness. Um, you know, I'm, I'm offering you some advice. Uh, as you can only see in them, the disinterested warnings of a parting friend, who can possibly have no personal motive to bias his counsel. Um, so he's saying, "Look, you know, you have every reason to listen to me. I don't, uh, I don't have a bias. I'm gonna tell you, tell you what I, you know, tell you like I think it is." Um, and what is he concerned with? Well, the first thing he's concerned with is unity. Um, uh, he says, the unity of government, which constitutes you one people, is also now dear to you. and It is justly so, for it's the main pillar in the edifice of your real independence. But it's easy to foresee that this unity is going to break down. He already knows that, you know, Hamilton and Jefferson are fighting. Um, there's already uh, political parties basically uh, waiting to be born in America. Uh, these guys are at each other's throats. Uh, you know, typical partisan American politics have already uh, asserted themselves and he's, he's worried about this, but more than, than parties, when he talks about factions, uh, you know, groups of people who don't have the common good in mind, uh, groups of people who are self-interested, um, you know, these, these, he's worried about factions, especially in the, the broader sense. It's not just partisan politics, it's a deeply uh, divided people that could rip the country apart. And so he talks about North and South. Uh, he is worried about North and South fighting, and he's trying to urge them—North, South, East, and West—to uh, uh, to realize that they need each other, and they need to stay uh, together as one. Now, there's a sense in which uh, the 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 mission of the founders failed, right? I mean, they failed to prevent a catastrophic civil war, um, and that was their their fear. Uh, they were all afraid of that divide ripping the country apart. That is what happened. Uh, you know, thanks to Lincoln, we, we stitch it together and we come out as one country and then become the world's uh, hegemon in the next century. But, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to look at this and the founding uh, with an understanding that this wasn't some solid thing. They all knew um, the divisions that could rip it apart, and they were concerned about it, and it's the first thing uh, Washington talks about. So he emphasizes their sameness. Um, he, he doesn't uh, you know he doesn't play up diversity and divide and say that that's a strength he says look uh, with slight shades of difference you have the same religion manners habits and political principles you have and let me repeat that with slight shades of difference you have the same religion manners and remember manners uh, relates to morals for the founders habits and political principles you have in common cause fought and triumphed together Um, You know, the independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. You've been through some stuff together. And, uh, you know, but but these considerations, however powerfully they address themselves to your sensibility, are more greatly outweighed by those which apply more immediately to your interest. In other words, you do have an affection for each other. You are similar. uh, But let me go further because I'm worried about what's going to happen. Um, Your interest... It's in your interest to stay together. Um, So he he talks about uh, the different regions of the country and uh, how they can complement each other and how when they work together, um, we can can be great. Um, So this is, um, you know, he says, these considerations speak a persuasive language to every reflecting and virtuous mind and exhibit the continuance of the union as a primary object of patriotic desire. Um, is there a doubt whether a common government can embrace so large a sphere? It's not known, right? I mean, they never they set the Constitution in stone, and they knew that that order, once they had it, even though it was imperfect and no one got what they wanted in the convention, was going to be the saving grace. What Washington is saying throughout is, uh, you know, the Constitution has to be uh, your guide. You have to give it a fair shot. Um, is there a doubt? There is a doubt whether a common government can embrace so large a territory. And so, and in fact, diverse of people, even at the time, now think of it today, it's even, it's even more so a problem um, of the, the vast differences between Americans. But he says, let experience solve it. To listen to mere speculation in such a case, we're criminal. We can't just, you know, have airy op-eds about whether this will work. Let's figure it out. Uh, let's figure it out. It is an experiment. And this is something that I, I, uh, I wish that the right had talked about more over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, um, it's the, the constitutional order is important because in our form of government, not based upon a person, that's the thing that has to last, but that order uh, can be altered, it is altered in experience, given the situations that change through, over time, and, and changing it is not some liberal thing, um, you know, changing it might be necessary in order to meet the circumstances. And uh, while well, we, we regard the Constitution with even today, we, we give it lip service at least, uh, with great respect, we still understand some semblance of this. Um, you know, it's been, it's been battered and beat beyond belief uh, in terms of how the government actually operates. And we're in danger now of having a you know, fake Constitution, especially on the right, in people's heads, as opposed to the real Constitution, which is how things actually operate. And in such a case, it may be too late, but in such a case, uh, you know, I think the wise thing to do would be to actually alter the structure, uh, alter the Constitution to fit reality in a way that's salutary, right? I mean, if you have a permanent deep state that you can't get rid of, uh, why not go to the constitutional document itself and change it? I know this sounds radical and terrible for someone on the right to say, uh, but I think when you see the way they regarded it during the time of the founding... They were aware that it was an experiment and experience needed to solve the problems. Um, so he's saying, you know, he's, he's playing up the order. It's well worth a fair and full experiment. Don't just abandon it. Um, um, you know, with such powerful and obvious motives to union at the time affecting all parts of our country, uh, you know, there's always reason to distrust the patriotism of those who any quarter may endeavor to weaken its bands. So he's, he's very much about uh, you know, comp- contemplating the causes that may disturb our union, addressing them, and saying um, you know, to the efficacy and permanency of our union, a government for the whole is indispensable. Uh, this goes again to uh, Washington's role, right? I mean, he is using all of his power at here now towards the end of his career to say, this is what's needed. You need this uh, union. You need this government for the whole. You need this constitution. And that is, uh, you know, that's the first part of the, 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 his message and a great part of the thrust of the whole thing. Um, so, you know, when, when you look at this, the way in which he's speaking, he's speaking at the highest level, giving the highest level sorts of advice directly about, uh, you know, the central problems as he sees them, um, you know, writ large of early America, um, And he says, you know, the basis of our political systems is the right of the people to make and to alter their constitutions of government. Um, But the Constitution, which any time exists till changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people, is sacredly obligatory upon all. The very idea of the power and right of the people to establish government presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. In other words, you can change it, um, but right now it is not inherently unjust. There's no reason to revolt. Um, at this time, and the, the, the whole idea of the people establishing government means that once they establish it, if they establish it, then it must be obeyed. Um, so he's very concerned with, um, you know, the authority, the legitimacy of the federal government and of the Constitution uh, itself. And then he talks about the spirit of division. <coughs> um, you know, here uh, he, he says this spirit, uh, unfortunately, is inseparable from our nature. Having its root in the strongest passions of the human mind, it exists under different shapes in all governments, more or less stifled, controlled, or repressed. But in those of the popular form, it's seen in its greatest rankness and is truly their worst enemy, the spirit of faction. One, one faction dominating over the other, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, uh, and a kind of cycle right, of recrimination back and forth. And this, is, uh, this leads to a frightful despotism. Uh, this leads at length to a more formal and permanent despotism. Uh, the disorders and miseries which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual, and sooner or later the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his, comp- than his competitors, turn this, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation to the ruins of, on the ruins of public liberty. Um, so, you know, he's saying, without looking forward to an extremity of this kind, which nevertheless ought not to be entirely out of sight, uh, we have to restrain uh, the spirit of division. And here is what uh, you know we see today. We see a radical divide where on one side is calling the other side completely illegitimate, uh, you know, semi-fascism, extremism, Nazis, uh, illegitimate people, half the, half the government, Trump is an illegitimate president. I mean the crisis of legitimacy is what you see now, and the very basis of the rule of law is what's in question, given what's uh, happened to the Constitution uh, and the rule of law being abused. And so when you get in one of those cycles, the natural uh, result is, is likely to be uh, the absolute power, as he says, of an individual. And the reason for this is because people do not like the anarchy and the fighting, and they will, they will automatically turn to said leader if they're able to bring peace to the regime. This is why people talk about uh, Caesar and Caesarism today, uh, sometimes with, uh, in, a, in a positive way as possibly the only way out, and we'll talk about that a little bit at the at the end when we digest um, these readings after we digest all these readings. So um, you know, he, he warns against this division. and of course, he's assuming that, at least in most respects, the company, the cu- country agrees on these fundamental principles, right? He says same religion, uh, same language, to, you know, you you, you you have the same fundamental principles and purposes. He knows uh, slavery is uh, an exception to that. I mean, it contradicts that in a way. He, he's aware of that. He's worried about North and South. He's trying to encourage uh, unity and hoping that this will ultimately lead the nation in a better direction. Um, so, so this um, you know this 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 warning about faction it goes beyond uh, parties. Although so he does talk about party parties a little bit. I mean, he's talking about the kind of divisions that, in fact, we, we see today. Um, so, you know, he says, if it, but, but we have to stay true to the Constitution. So he says, um, you know, people who rule have to confine themselves to their respective constitutional spheres. They need to avoid the exercise of the powers of one department to encroach upon the other. Gosh, could you imagine that happening? Um, the spirit of encroachment tends to consolidate the powers of all the departments in one and thus, to create whatever the form of government, a real despotism. So you have to make sure that the constitution is power is is uh, is enforced, because if you start encroaching on you know different different branches start encroaching on the other, you ultimately will get a kind of uh, despotism. So, it, it, and if, in the opinion of the people, the distribution or modification of the constitutional powers be in any particular wrong, let it be corrected by an amendment in the way which the constitution designates. But I thought there'd be no change by usurpation, for though in this one instance it may be the instrument of good, it's the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. Uh, well, friends, I would say you know that's the last century um, usurpation of the Constitution in the Constitution's name. Uh, we've done all kinds of things that uh, aren't so good, and now you wonder even if uh, you know modifying the Constitution could rectify that. Um, I would say it's at least the kind of thing that people should be thinking about. Uh, if they want to preserve constitutional government at all, so after he gives you know these these two very important points, he then turns <coughs> to a, a quote that he is very interesting, and uh, you know is is usually cited uh, by uh, kind of right leaning nerds in their fellowships and whatnot. But I think uh, the true depth of the statement is is sometimes lost. Um, we need to apply it to today and look to the future, not the past. He says this. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, that is religion and morality, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician equally with the pious man ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. That's private and public happiness. Let it simply be asked, where's the security for property, for reputation, for life? If the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths, which are the instruments of investigation in the courts of justice. You have to swear to God, um, you have to swear on the Bible that you're gonna tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Um, if if you, you get rid of um, you know, the, the basis, the moral basis, morality and religion, the moral basis for uh, why lying is wrong, how can you have trust that's needed to bind a community together? And he goes further. And this, you can't help but think, is a little dig towards people like Thomas Jefferson, who are a little bit more modern and uh, maybe thought that morality could be maintained without religion. Although even in Jefferson's case, he thought there was a God and he thought that uh, there was order in nature. But what Washington says is, And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure— Tommy Jefferson. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. And so it's substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. The rule extends with more or less force to every species of free government. Who That is a sincere friend to it can look with indifference upon attempts to shake the foundation of the fabric. So, promote, then, as an object of primary importance, institutions for the general diffusion of knowledge. In proportion as the structure of a government gives force to public opinion, it is essential that public opinion should be enlightened. In other words, there is a sense in which government gives force to public opinion. So public opinion should be enlightened. How? Through institutions of the general diffusion of knowledge, which will do what? They'll teach morality. They will teach ethics, and they will teach ethics that's that correlates with or is based upon religion. Even if, as Jefferson thought, uh, you know, if you were a teacher at the University of Virginia, which he helped found, uh, you shouldn't have divinity teachers uh, sponsored by the state. Uh, pastors could be sponsored to teach their uh, teach their adherents uh, by each religion. But you would have an ethics teacher who taught proofs of the existence of God and the basic rational truth of morality, which overlapped with Christianity. That is the synthesis that made the early republic possible. And people like to quote this, like, oh, the founders were understood Christianity and morality. Uh, but what I say is think about where we're at now. Think about where we're at now. Um, at first, there was this secularizing attempt to say, Uh, you know, no. Uh, What we know about morality is wrong because religion is false, in particular Christianity. Christianity is evil, in fact. It's oppressive. And, uh, you know, therefore, everything we thought about morality has to be rethought. Uh, And now you really see, you know, pro-human and trans-human. You see fundamental differences about what men and women are, what the family is, what citizenship is, therefore, what countries are, uh, you know, what morality is, what sexual morality is. These are fundamental divides. And, you know, if it's substantially true, as Washington says, that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government, uh, we're in a bad way. And it's not as if we don't have a notion of virtue or morality or religion. We have a new civic religion in wokeness that is directly opposed to that of Christianity. And it's it's sad to me that so many Christians seem to be sleepwalking. They they seem not to realize this and to take for granted the fact that, you know, they're just going to be able to be free to do what they want forever when, in fact, there is a uh, directly opposing force that is going to replace uh, that old morality of the early republic. It's already been replaced in every major institution in the country, and it's been that way for a long time. So the difference now is that you have a new uh, you know, bunch of zealots. You have a new, uh, a new religion that is, uh, is on fire, that's spreading throughout the land, and it's being forced upon the people. And, you know, if, if every founder, even if they weren't particularly religious themselves, saw the necessity of religion for virtue and morality and the necessity of virtue and morality for you know, the, the survival of popular government, and you look at what we have today, you would say popular government is not possible, according to the founders. I don't understand why the right doesn't talk about this more. I mean, according to Washington, given what I just read to you, if he looked around today, what would he say? How is popular government even possible? in a people that is A, this divided, not unified, doesn't share the same principles and purposes, and does not have the virtue and morality uh, that he's talking about that stems from Christianity. Uh, and in fact, there's two, at least, religions warring against each other within this country. If you can even say that Christians are warring, I'm not even sure how hard we'd say. Um, they're fighting politically. A lot of them seem to just go along with the, uh, the religion of the regime. And bow down before it. Um, you know, and, and wokeness has, uh, it's a rainbow. Uh, there's, there's, there's many different uh, identities. Every religion is welcome there, kind of like ancient Rome, uh, as long as you bow down to the gods of the city. And that is precisely what's going on in a thousand ways in American society now. Um, so the idea that um, you know, virtue and morality is necessary for popular government and religion is necessary for virtue and morality and that government does give force to public opinion. Uh, he's not a libertarian. Uh, public opinion should be enlightened by institutions that diffuse knowledge. And, of course, we have that going on today. Those elite quasi-official institutions, um, in large part supported by the government, are in, and, and the government takes all those people in as their leaders, are, in fact, uh, possessed by a religion. You know what the tenets are if you violate its dogma, if you speak against it. Uh, you know what happens to you 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 are uh, ostracized from elite society. Um, so we have this it's the opposite of what he was talking about, and we have the divide, and we have the divide. Um, he also uh, goes on he's very concerned about public credit, um, he's concerned about the justice of again, they always speak in moral terms about uh, about debt. Uh, he's concerned about that, that he wants to make sure that we are sensible in terms of the public debt. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I don't even, I don't even. I shouldn't have to say anything about where we're at. There, um, you know, uh, with uh, rising inflation, and uh, I'm a sort of uh, complete irresponsibility in our leaders to just print money, and uh, and spend it. It's um, it's it's really reckless. We're in kind of the late republic now, looting the treasury, uh, violating everything he says here about public credit, and then he goes on to talk about. Uh, to talk about uh, foreign affairs. And he says, Observe good faith and justice towards all nations. Cultivate peace and harmony with all. Religion and morality enjoin this conduct, and can it be that good policy does not equally enjoin it? Uh, again, it's self-interest, and it's good. Uh, it will be worthy of a free, enlightened, and at no distant period a great nation to give to mankind the magnanimous and too novel example of a people always guided by an exalted justice and benevolence. Um, You know, can it be that providence has not connected the permanent felicity of a nation with its virtue? That providence has not connected the permanent happiness, in other words, of a nation with its virtue? Uh, We need to be uh, virtuous when it comes to how we deal with other nations. And that means we can't get too attached or, uh, you know, have too much hatred towards any nation. We need to sort of keep somewhat apart and go our own way and be very careful when we get entangled into... Uh, Those alliances, Um, you know, uh, you really—he hammers this point because he knows the danger, and he's been thinking of the danger of how to navigate uh, through, you know, a a dangerous sea of larger powers in the United States at the time, and how we survive without getting taken up into their wars. Uh, Now we are the hegemon, and of course. Uh, As the most powerful nation in the world, um, we have a class of people that seems to enjoy, uh, you know, adventures in foreign lands. Um, You know, a sort of strange empire where we don't physically usually take over a space for long, uh, but we regard the world as a place where we can go and mess around, and uh, you know, have the godlike power to build regimes and tear them down. And this has gotten us into, of course, a lot of trouble. Uh, and you can see this in Ukraine, which I won't go into, which is a very complex uh, and the situation. But you just see the glee with which uh, the lack of care, the lack of caution, the lack of understanding anything Washington is talking about on the part of our foreign policy elites today and uh, you know the war machine. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. And when you read what he says carefully about uh, foreign policy, it's, it's profound. Uh, it's profound. And it, and it bears uh, rereading. In any event, um, he says. Uh, after uh, he says, you know, let's stay neutral right now. Uh, that's the other thing he's worried about because he's worried about our survival uh, in the in the wars of Europe. And then at the end, we get this um, sort of blessing. Uh, whatever his errors, he says, I, I I'm nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable that I have committed many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils to which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence, and that, after forty-five years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion, as myself must soon be to the mansions of rest. So, relying on its kindness in this, as in other things, and actuated by that fervent love towards it, which is so natural to a man who views in it the native soil of himself and his progenitors for several generations, I anticipate, with pleasing expectation, that retreat in which I promise myself to realize, without alloy, the sweet enjoyment of partaking in the midst of my fellow citizens, the benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever-favorite object of my heart, and the happy reward, as I trust, of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers. George Washington. Now, two things about that. One is, uh, you know, note the um, the humility, uh, but the strength. Um, look, I didn't, you know, I, I probably committed errors. I didn't mean to. Uh, I, I asked God to avert or mitigate them, and I hope you indulge my years of service. Uh, you know, I've done some things for you. So, you know, look at look at the good, not the bad, um, which is a um, a uniquely Republican flex, right, in terms of forms of government, Um He's both saying, look to what I've done, and what I've done is serious, Uh, my life of service to this country, uh, trying to do my duty as best I could. Look, not to my faults, but I did have faults, I'm sure, and I hope they're consigned to oblivion. And then he, 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 he anticipates what? He anticipates going, again, the word again, citizen. You see in the beginning, In the midst of my fellow citizens, I am just a citizen like the rest of you, even though I'm kind of not, but I'm wholly a citizen, right? Um, I'm not just like everyone else, but I am just like everyone else in terms of being a citizen, and that's why you are my fellows. We are fellow citizens, and I'm going to enjoy the good laws under a free government. I'm not, in other words, above the law, the ever-favorite object of my heart and the happy reward of all of our work together, is for him to enjoy good laws under a free government, and he goes back uh, to Mount Vernon. Now, um, a lot to say about this, but we'll we'll tease it out at the end. What happens next in Washington's life? Well, he does go back to the farm, uh, but he's not in a position where uh, you know he gets to retire, retire, as in uh, he doesn't have to do anything. On uh, many an evening, you would you would write a letter to try to get invited. Uh, To see the man, and if you were accepted, you would go, and he would entertain guests at dinner. I mean, imagine you know, in your retirement, having to have a continual stream of visitors into the house. Uh, Never mind all the emails, uh, all the letters. uh, You know, he would write back and forth. Uh, He's still representing his country, and there is a story that goes to uh, the nature of Washington's leadership on on the softer side and perhaps something unique about the, the notion of Republican executive power, uh, where a, a young man who was served in, in the war, served in, served in the military, uh, comes to uh, Mount Vernon and he writes this in his diary. And if you read this little book called The Founders on the Founders, it's a great little book uh, by a historian who really likes stories. That's how you know they're good, by the way. Uh, real historians actually like stories about people. It's a crazy idea, I you know. Uh, as opposed to the terrible, you know, academic types, scholars. Anyway, this guy writes a book, Founders and the Founders. It's great if you have ADD. Uh, it's uh, it's just little snippets of founders talking smack about each other or saying good things about each other. Uh, and there's this—I don't even know where he found it. This is just this random diary note from this uh, this guy who ends up visiting and is, and of course, blown away. He's going to go see George Washington. He's not a big deal himself, and he sits down at the table and he's clearly sick. He's coughing. He's got a cold. And they'll say, "Hey, you need to drink some soup. You need to." Have a hot cup of something. And, uh, you know, he says, No, no, he's fine. He's, you know, he's a tough guy. I'm fine. And he says later on that evening, when he goes to bed, there's a knock on the door. And uh, he opens it. And there's George Washington uh, bearing a cup of soup and bringing it to him, knowing the young man will will take it if Washington himself gives it to him. And he says something like, You know, I just want it to be known that this guy did this for me. So I usually give some version of this talk uh, again to the, the Claremont Fellows. And um The reason for it is not just, as I said, at the outset, uh, historical interest or you know, to feel good about a uh, part of the American past. Uh, it's okay, and you should feel good about these figures. But I present Washington as a way of thinking about the future of America uh, and the future of executive power and the future of our form of government. Um, there is a um, an understanding, that we are in a situation in which um, the kind of leadership that's needed would have to be more powerful than the permanent state, the deep state, or you know the powers that be that are entrenched in Washington, D.C., um, the unelected officials who um, seem to want to criminalize dissent and uh, collude with each other in elections, uh, to prevent anyone they oppose from being elected, and to disgrace, uh, you know lie about and uh, you know conspire against um, any executive they don't like when they're in office. And as this escalates, as this grows, the urge for a leader who will just cut through all that crap uh, becomes greater and will become greater in America. And of course, y- you can regard this and you should as a great danger. But the problem is, if we've already lost something like this form of government, which we, you know, we've already reformed, re refounded ourselves a few times, um, you could also view it as necessary. I know that's controversial. Um, I don't necessarily believe it myself, but I think that uh, I think that this is not irrational at this point. And the the main problem is, just as a, just as a, an analysis of the situation, you could easily see. Um, this happening regardless of what anyone wants uh there's a uh a friend of mine named charles haywood who writes at a website called the worthy house he has two pieces about caesarism that are very thought-provoking uh certainly controversial i mean he says it's going to happen it's probably a good thing on the whole uh but it, it'll, it'll be a red caesar it'll be a right-leaning caesar who will take the fecklessness of the right and use it uh he's like he, he'll be pragmatic you'll survive, in some ways it'll be good because he'll get rid of all the woke stuff. In other ways, it won't be so good because he'll have all the power. Um, and he just kind of matter-of-factly lays this out. Um, you know, I don't necessarily agree with Charles on all that stuff either, um, but it's, they're very thought-provoking pieces, and they give you a sense of how people are thinking, um, even if just pragmatically, about our situation. And I think they're, they're more forward-looking and more insightful than most of the crap you read on the Internet. Um, so the, the question is, it, there's no doubt, I mean, I'm someone who studied, you know, for years, the founding and, and read through as much as I could of eagerly, greedily, uh, all the documents and try to figure out what, what kind of regime was this? What, what, what was the early republic and, and uh, what was its nature? Um, the question is, what do you want, as I'm fond of saying, in the future? Um, and I think if you, if you think about that question, there's a couple of things we can say are sure. Um, one is that someone who wields regime level power, at least at the level of George Washington, uh, who founds slash refounds America uh, in a variety of ways, makes it what it is. Uh, Lincoln, uh, who takes a divided country and forges uh, basically something, uh, something out of it that I think represents um, you know, very much the founding principles um, but has to refound the nation again after uh, a cataclysm. You know the worst possible fear you could have: a devastating civil war. Um, and then you you certainly have Wilson, who wants to uh, change fundamentally the principles, uh, rejects the principles of the founding uh, in his heart and in his actions. Uh, FDR, who couches great changes in government in a tumultuous time, in the language of the founding. Um, but nonetheless, refounds it again, and then the civil rights regime, um, when we decide that uh, to use what Americans thought was uh, you know a colorblind society, we were creating uh, all that legislation was used over the last you know 60 years uh, to in fact divide us by identity politics, uh, and those laws kind of reign supreme uh, over all of American society. Those are all you know refoundings of the basic kind of structure. Uh, of government, so there's no question that at the very least we would need a, a president, a leader who wields the regime of power of a Washington, etc. The question is, what are they wielding that power for? Right. What do you want? Um, is it possible to um, to reconstruct uh, the the structure of the early American republic? Uh, is that possible at this point, given the situation we're in, given the reality? of what America is, and all the people who compose it, and their divisions. Um, is it a, a, a new form of that old thing, some kind of continuation of the Republican form of government but altered to meet the circumstances of our time, um, you know, in other words, a, a kind of evolution or uh, adaptation of uh, older principles for the sake of the 21st century? Uh, or is it something altogether? Does the whole thing need to be thrown out, and do we need a do-over? Um, which increasingly, I think, younger people, that's what they feel. They think this is, this is not going anywhere good. Uh, the principles have been bad for a long time, and we need to completely rethink the deal. Uh, so the, 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 the principle number one is we do need a refounding. We do need someone, at least the level of power that a Washington had, which was substantial, and that's my point, uh, to uh, most likely we need that person to come and to uh, reform things. Of course, the problem is you can't, you can't choose who this person is, <laughs> um, necessarily. You can try to foster uh, the conditions, you can try to foster it. Uh, and, and, and look, the other thing is people know. People are gonna come out of the woodwork because they sense that this is happening. They, they see that the moment. Uh, they know that Trump, for instance, it you know, was a businessman who never was in politics before and he attained the presidency. Um, so so this isn't, you know, this isn't a matter of speculation. I'm not just making stuff up to scare people. I'm talking about reality, cold, hard reality and analyzing the situation. And in that situation, there are a lot of people thinking about, uh, you know, what form of leadership is needed, uh, whether they should be the one, uh, you know, what, what. but the bottom line is it most likely, yes, we do in fact need a figure to come along uh, to reform or help refound America. Okay. Number two, on the other extreme of that, uh, we have to say uh, that, I say, that anyone who comes along and uh, just wields power for the sake of themselves and does not create an order that is greater than them, an order that will outlast them, you know, that is a problem. That's certainly not something I want. Uh, I, I don't want to see anyone come in and wield power and destroy the structure and then you know pass on or get assassinated and then we're left with nothing um you know and that is a problem people desire i I can't tell you how many people desire coming up this sort of leader like daddy to come in and and set things right you know uh napoleon on the horse um you know charlemagne uh they want this because they want the order because they see how bad things are and what we need to be thinking about is what should that leader be working towards? What order do we want? What order makes sense? Now, those are very complicated questions. Those are very deep and profound questions. Uh, and they need to revolve around what's possible. Uh, what's possible in the, in the circumstances? And there, opinions differ, right? Um, people will say, well, uh, you know, say more on the left, well, we know what right and wrong is and we know what needs to happen and we will enforce it upon half the population that is uh, racist, fascist, uh, et cetera. And you know, we, will, we will wield power in the way that's just and increasingly these people are out of control. You know, uh, people will die because of their policies. No matter what their policies are, people will die. And therefore, you know, we need to do these things. Their leaders are illegitimate. Um, they need to be raided by the FBI. Uh, they need to be hounded. Uh, we need to, you know, just just batten down the hatches and a white-knuckle power and, and wield it to force compliance uh, in the population. And, and of course, that's going to provoke, it is provoking and has provoked, a reaction, um, a reaction that you almost see uh, some people wanting because then it gives them an excuse to double down, double down again, double down again. Um, so, so in any event, the question is what what order is possible given the circumstances, and your mileage will vary depending on how bad uh, you see the scene. But I, I'm here to tell you that a lot of people in position to see the scene uh, better than uh, you know your average Joe, just because of the position they're in, just because of the perch, the sight lines they have. Um, you know, they don't they don't think this is uh, going very well. Uh, they don't think this is very stable. You talk about f- the financial world. You talk about um, you know, the, the way in which the, the federal government is being run, um, you know, people understand who see it for what it is, that this is not in a good place. America is not a good place. It's not stable. Um, so, so the question, the great question is, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? Uh, what is realistic? What, is, what makes sense? What prudentially in the circumstances makes sense in terms of an order that would, uh, you know, refound America in a way that's salutary, in a way that makes sense, in a way that preserves peace and, and promotes happiness. And in the midst of all this, you know, you 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 have to look back and get a little bit more serious than you know, your subgroup on the internet. Uh, and when you game this out and you think about what you want, and of all the examples in American history, there's perhaps no greater figure, right, than the father. Of our country, George Washington, because whatever comes next, whatever should come next, his example in America is the preeminent example of someone who wielded that power. I mean, really, f- he himself fought off the opposing force in a revolution. In a revolution, and then fostered uh, with everything he had, fostered, allowed, uh, you know, protected, supported. The development of a constitutional government that outlasted him and that allowed for some measure of stability, uh, even through all the ups and downs that America has had. And what he saw was, throughout his entire life, what he saw was the importance of setting the example of that order, which he had to create from nothing. I mean, I was just reading the other day in the White House, uh, you know, he had to walk a fine line between being too royal. And hoity-toity, because, but also, you know, being uh, being uh, somewhat elevated, so that it wasn't just you know like country bumpkins in the White House when dignitaries came, but it was Republican, right? It wasn't it wasn't royal, it wasn't an empire. And he had to think through what that looked like, uh, what kind of stuff they should buy and eat with, what kind of manners should they have at the table, which what, what sort of customs were okay and what were out of bounds. In other words every detail of his life. This is why the rules of civility were so important. He's thinking about what kind of order am I establishing for everyone else? What kind of order am I establishing that will outlast me? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the difference. That is what makes for statesmanship. That dedication to establishing an order that is going to outlast you, that is in some way going to become uh, more powerful than you are. And that is what a constitution is in the essential sense, uh, whether it's written or unwritten. It's the form or structure of government. And what the best form of structure of government will should, is, uh, to some extent, depends upon the circumstances you're in and what the people need and what the situation demands and what the situation really rules out. Um, so if if we're going to think, about what's needed next, what we're shooting for, what we want and what we don't want uh, we need to think about how George Washington lived his life, Chad Washington, uh, about how Washington was conscious of this tension and worked for the sake of an order greater than himself. Hey, if you enjoyed this uh, this class, there's more uh, there's more coming. Uh, And I think you will. if you enjoyed this one, you will enjoy the others as well. Uh, I just want to shout out again uh, to the Claremont Institute, claremont.org. This is a version of something that I uh, talk that I give to the fellows in the Claremont Fellowship programs. And if you don't know about them, you should. Um, If you like this, uh, please give me a shout out. Uh, Feel free to reach me at docmjp, at docmjp on Twitter. Uh, And subscribe, like. Share, review, all those things if you could. It only takes a second and it helps us out a lot. Thank you.